Well, we have a special treat this morning. Uh, some of you know Al and Judy Sable. Some of you go back 40 years or so with them. And it was a thrill to know they were going to be in town this week and to be with us and spend a little time. And so we prevailed on Al not only to speak at the men's breakfast yesterday, if you weren't there, <laughs> tough, um, and, uh, and to prevail on him for this morning that he would come and bring the word to us today. Uh, Al first uh, came to ECF back in 1997. Is that what you said yesterday? 97 you first visited? And they were with us for a while, and then uh, Kodak decided he shouldn't be here and sent him out west, and then they came back, and, and again, Rochester belched them forth, and they ended up in Boston, and, and so who knows what's next on the plate. But anyway, uh, they're with us this morning. We're so glad you're here. And uh, Al is, uh, is an elder at Nauset Baptist Church in Cape Cod. Um, he's, been, uh, he's been ministering the word for many a good year, and we're just pleased to have him share the word with us this morning. So, brother, if you'll come. Thank you, brother. I want to thank the elders for inviting me to, to speak. Um, at a moment of insanity, I said yes. Um, and then I want to thank York for uh, his hymn selection this morning because I'm essentially emotionally undone after having those hymns. So I think we should just have a word of prayer. And This book uh, means a lot to me, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. Uh, you can say it either way. It's all right. Uh, it means a lot to me. It's... Uh, it's been a study of mine for uh, the last uh, year or so, and there are there's so much in here. And at 4:30 this morning, as I was going through my notes and everything, I kept seeing new things and said, "Well, I should say that. I should add this to it." Um, so I'm going to give you just a few squeezings uh, from this book, um, and hopefully to the benefit and the glory, a benefit of you and the glory of God. Uh, so, Habakkuk, I ask that you all read it um, a couple of times over this week. Hopefully you have, because uh, there's no way you can probably pick up in the context of all that's going on here uh, instantly. But imagine how you'd feel if you were a prophet of God in Israel, and you saw issues going on. Uh, that the people of God were falling aside and were not uh, properly worshiping in the temple, uh, the effects of years of domination of Assyria, and bad leaders that have come, Manasseh, and finally there's Josiah, who's the king, and yet there's still so much that's just wickedness going on inside the people of God, the family of God, where you would expect to see God worship properly. And he's been praying. He's been praying for a long time and asking God to deal with this situation in his, his nation. He's been praying earnestly. And then what happens? After a long time of prayer without the Lord really answering, the, the Lord answers and he answers and says, I'm going to rise up that wicked and hasty nation, the Chaldeans, and I'm going to devastate my people. 
That's not the prayer, uh, that's not the response that he expected when he was lifting up and crying out, saying, Lord, how long is this going to go on? You know? And the Lord answered differently the prophet's prayer. Who is this man, Habakkuk? You know, I noticed that uh, a lot of little children here, probably a lot of them named Jeremiah, Micah, Jonah. Nobody seems to name their kid Habakkuk. What's up with that? <laughs> little Hab. Anybody named Habakkuk here? What's the matter with this guy? I mean, we name our kids after prophets. This is a prophet of God. He spoke and wrote somewhere around 620 B.C. He was apparently a contemporary of Jeremiah. And as I said, uh, during the reign of Josiah, he was one of the prophets in Israel, in Judah. He was a patriot. He loved his king and his country. He was a good man, apparently, from all that we can tell. We don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk. There isn't much history. We can glean this and that and the other thing. And I want to give credit uh, to a couple of authors that I've read. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite writers, and uh, Walt Chantry. Both wrote books on Habakkuk. And what little we know, I wonder sometimes when these guys uh, write these things, you know, where they're really getting this information. But it sounded good to me. And in this book, uh, there's one of the richest quotes of all of the Old Testament. It's quoted several times. The just shall live by faith. Paul uses it in Galatians. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in Hebrew. Um, sorry, that's an inside joke. Uh, we don't know if he wrote Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. So he understands. And certainly in this wonderful book, you can see a transition taking place in the prophet, in the dialogue with God. And what I'd like to do is look at his first argument, his second argument, and how things change and how his heart is molded to respond properly to God. So the context, again, as I've already said, is that uh, Judah's in a bad state. People have become wicked, disobedient, and Habakkuk has been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, and God's not answering his prayer. Ever had that experience? Sometimes God says, wait, and we'll, we'll get into that. That's one of, what I'd like to do is we'll look at some of the things that happened and some of the argument and the dialogue that took place, as Mike, Mike related to. And then we'll look at some lessons that we can take from that. And I'm told that we have to be out of here by 1.30. That's right. Yeah, yeah good. There's so much in here, and there's so much I'd love to share with you. In our home church, I preached the longest sermon in history of Nosset Baptist Church on this passage, believe it or not. People were very kind, and the tar didn't hurt much. So what's the problem? We pray just like the prophet. We have our request. We made our request known unto the Lord, and the Lord answers, and he says, I'm going to tell you something that you are, frankly, not going to believe. And in fact, later in chapter 2, he tells him, write this down. Be careful. Take note specifically. I don't want you to make any mistakes here because what I'm about to tell you, you're not going to believe. I'm going to rise up the Chaldeans. 
Now, if you know anything about history, the Chaldeans, or as I said, modern-day Iraq or Babylonia, um, uh, I don't want to go down that road because of all that we've heard already this morning has been so uplifting, but the Chaldeans were really wicked. And when they would go into a city or a country, they would devastate them. Devastate them. It's horrible, the stories that you read in history about how these people treated their enemies. Horrible. Unbelievable. So you can see the contrast. I'm praying to God. God, revive your church. Revive the people of God. And God says, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, and they're going to come in and devastate the entire nation of Israel. Judah will no longer be what it was. Stunning. So what we have in this book is a theological dilemma. It's... It's the kind of thing that we see occasionally in the scriptures that frankly doesn't fit our, our caricature of God. And we, we see, um, I want to say this, um, and I want to say it in a way that hopefully you won't judge me, but what do we do when God misbehaves When God misbehaves, when the things that are happening in our lives, we say, this wasn't supposed to happen. This is not the way it should be. How many times have you said that? How many times have I said that? You've been through some terrible times here in the last couple of years. Same kind of things have been happening at Nauset in our little congregation there. And um, when, I, when I preached this message, I preached in the context of all these things that are happening that we just don't like and we don't understand at all. And it doesn't fit our caricature of who God is. And we begin to say one of two things. Either God isn't who we said he was or who I thought he was or there is no God. We're tempted to become atheists. And if you've been through some severe trials, and I assume that you have, because Christians who have been Christians for more than a month have probably been through some fairly severe trials. Theological dilemma. What do we do when God misbehaves? So let's zoom in on the first couple of of verses in the first argument with Habakkuk. In verse 2 of chapter 1, Uh, And I'm reading now from the New American Standard, and I brought both versions with me. And in fact, I asked Reed if we could have the ESV read because there's some words in the interpretation of the Hebrew and ESV which are quite uh, helpful. And there are some words in the New American Standard Bible which are also helpful. So I'm going to try to go back and forth a little bit, so please bear with me a little bit. But in the New American Standard, he says, How long, O Lord, will I call... For help, and thou will not hear. I cry out to thee, violence, and yet thou dost not save. Why 
Dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence before me. Strife exists and contention arises. This sounds like an elder meeting, you know, praying <laughs> about the church. Strife and contention, but not here, at Gosset. Uh, what's wrong? What's wrong with this kind of prayer in this initial uh, record of the dialogue is that this whole first argument is man-centered. It's man-centered. It's man-centered. Look at it. How long, Lord, will I call out for help and thou will not hear? I want, I want it now. You know, I want to hear from you now. Why dost thou make me see iniquity? Wait a minute. It's like I'm the Holy One and you're making me look at iniquity. It's man-centered. Man-centered. His first argument, he's all wet. He's starting out with a complete self-absorbed, I'm crying out, you're not listening to me. I have to see all these bad things. And then he says, strife exists, contention arises, therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. You know what? When we ask for justice, be careful. Beware. If our prayers are full of, I deserve what's coming to me, beware. This is the prophet of God. He's saying, I want justice. Really? Okay. The, the argument so far, not so hot. Okay. He adjusts his argument in the second argument. After the Lord speaks about all the things that are going to take place in verses 5 through uh, 11, the prophet adjusts his argument a little bit. He's getting the point. He says, I'm beginning to understand uh, a little bit more, Lord. And he says in verse 12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Lord, O God, thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge, and thou, O Rock, hast established them to correct. Now thus far, he's beginning to get it right. And what's he done? He's taken a man-centered prayer and turned it into a God-centered prayer. And what my counsel has been to people who are going through situations where down is up and inside is out and absolutely nothing is right, everything is wrong, is go back to what you know is true. Don't start with the situation. Lord, I've been praying. You're not listening. You make me look at injustice. Start with what you know is true. The only thing stable is God. 
And here the prophet changes the whole tenor of his prayer to a God-centered prayer. Look at, listen to what he's saying. You are eternal. He says, thou art from everlasting, eternal. This is God's unchanging nature. He's the same yesterday and today, and he will be tomorrow. Whether our lives are turned inside out, upside down, whatever the case may be, God doesn't change. Start with that. Listen, you are self-existent, O Lord. He calls him Jehovah. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Jehovah brings forth the great I Am. You are infinite, O Lord. You are powerful. You are unchanging. O Lord, you are self-existent. You are holy, he says in this verse. My Holy One, he calls Him. You are mighty. Listen, he says, Thou art my rock. In verse 12b. You know, have you ever been in an earthquake? I've been in several. I was, my first one was when I was in Japan. 1987. I was on the 19th floor of a hotel and I was asleep in my bed. And I had gotten to sleep late and it was my first night. And I awoke to a maid shaking my, my bat, my, my, my shoulder saying, you know, not saying anything but shaking. But I opened my eyes and there was no maid, but the bed was moving. And if you've never been in an earthquake, you don't know how disconcerting it is because everything you know about stability rests on the fact that you're going to stand on something that's not going to move. And when the earth is doing this, your mind can't cope with it. And that's what happens in these trials that we find ourselves in periodically. When the earth is moving, the only thing stable is God. He is our rock. Start there. You are faithful. He says, we will not die. We will not die. I know that if God were to wipe every Christian, I know that there would be a remnant someplace, and I know that we would live for eternity with him in glory, and I have to remind myself of that when everything's going wrong. And there are times when it seems everything is going wrong. And this is common to all of us Christians. Every single one of us. So I love what the prophet has done here. He has changed his prayer from a self-centered, man-centered prayer to a God-centered, God is my rock, prayer. And my advice to the saints is when you're in that situation, and you will be, and if you haven't been, trust me, it will come. Start here. Start with God. Start every prayer with God. You know the old acronym ACTS, right? Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Think about that. Start with adoration. Start every prayer with God. Now, there are times I realize when I'm... That's something I must say we don't have at Nasa. Uh, (laughs) 
There are times uh, when we cry out an ejaculatory prayer when I'm heading into an intersection and I hit the brake pedal and it doesn't work. Help! Right? I mean, there are appropriate times for just jumping right into it. But start every prayer with God. And just rehearsing these attributes of God, the prophet is calmed somewhat. In the midst of this situation where up is down, inside is out, and everything's turned around and nothing's right and everything's out of place, starting with the attributes of God is a good thing. It's, it's what doesn't change. But then the prophet does another shift. Look at verse 13. He was doing so well, but this is like us. You know, I mean, we have moments of brilliance where we're right with the Lord and then moments where we're, we're get, not getting it. And the prophet somewhat goes back to, Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. And what we have in verse 13 is the prophet has degenerated to some false assumptions. He has at least three, maybe four false assumptions in verse 13. And if you looked at that verse for a while, you could probably find out at least three false assumptions about God in this prophet's prayer. Look at this first one. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. The false assumption number one is that he's actually approving of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, or the Iraqis. He's, you know, the idea, and, and if, if you look at Asaph's, and write this down if you're taking notes, Psalm 73, Asaph, a wonderful psalm. Most of us who have been walking with the Lord at one time or another have referred to it because Asaph had the same issue. He says, in vain I have kept my heart pure. Look at those wicked people while they're fat and having a great time. They're partying. I'm over here struggling as a believer. Look at them. And then, you know, the way the Psalms work sometimes is the, the conclusion is in the beginning, and then the story goes later. But he says at one point in the, I think around the fourth verse or so, he says, but when I consider where they're headed, I recognize I shouldn't be jealous of the wicked. That's the same kind of idea here. The idea is that God is preferring the Chaldeans over his own people. That's the mentality. If he's going to raise up the Chaldeans to smite the people of God, the sheep of his own pasture, it must be because he favors them. False assumption number two. He doesn't approve of it, and he's not favoring them. And then, this whole concept in 13b in the English Standard Version says, Why do you idly look at the traitors when, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This concept is uh, that God is sitting up there just kind of not being involved. Aren't there times when you and I are undergoing a severe trial? And I mean the worst of the worst kind of trials that you can imagine, where we think uh, like an unbeliever, that if there is a God, he must not be engaged in, in the affairs of men. And that's what the prophet's saying here. Why do you, why do you, 
your idol. The idea that he's actually accusing God of, of being inactive, not being involved in the affairs of men. And then the fourth false assumption comes along with this idea of that he swallows up the man more righteous than he. What does this mean? Well, this implies that what the prophet is saying here is that the, the people of God, the people of Judah, were more righteous than the Chaldeans. I mean, that, that makes sense, right? Except if you really understood and you go through like the book of Amos, the whole precept of the book of Amos is that the people of God know who know better are more wicked than those who don't know better. So it depends on your perspective. But you see, the prophet here made a false assumption. He said, uh, God's choosing to have favor on those that are less righteous than me. False assumption number four. So what's the lesson we can derive from this? I would say this, that God has always been and will continue to be sovereign in his use of whomever and whatever instrument he chooses. The more I read and study this little three-chapter book, the more I stand in wonderment of this God we serve. And the less I begin, when I begin to think, well, I, I know all about God now. Okay, let's move on to some higher theology, right? The more I live this life and I see my fellow saints struggle with severe trials, the more I wonder if I know God at all. Think of, of what Paul said in Romans 9, chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 17, when he quotes Exodus, and he says, remember the situation with Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was a god, right? Pharaoh thought he had infinite power. I am Pharaoh. Uh, you know, I can't help it. I have the Cecil B. DeMille version in my brain of Pharaoh. What was the guy's name? Yul Brynner. Uh, but uh, that's the picture, is this pop puffed up, pompous guy who thought he was God. And remember, it says that for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the world. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? For his own namesake. Hmm. That's not what Pharaoh thought. It's probably not what the people of Israel thought when they were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. But consider the history of the Jewish nation. Consider the history of the Jewish nation. Egypt, 400 years. The Assyrians, over 100 years. Babylonians, for quite some period of time. After that was the Persians. After that was Rome. After that etc., etc., right up into our era of Germany. And God has always raised up the wicked to deal with his people. Strange. This God we serve. Look at the crucifixion and that wonderful passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that 
says this man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, does that sound like double talk to you? Did you hear what I read? This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God has always chosen his own instruments to do his work. And the question of whether or not he loves them more than his people is absolutely shown over and over and over in the scriptures. And in fact, what I like about the New American Standard version of this first chapter of Habakkuk, in verse 11, if you have that version, it says this, they will, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. See, the English Standard misses that a little bit. What's God saying? He's saying, I'm not going to favor them. I'm not favoring them. I'm using them. And I'm going to hold them guilty, just like he held the Romans guilty for the crucifixion of our Lord that we celebrate this week. I don't understand it. But these are things that we find in the Scriptures which defy man's logic, like so many other things, which I would say then, what is the real problem that the prophet has here? We want to redefine God we want, to, we want to put God in a nice container that we understand and that fits our logic. I've seen churches, you know, because, as Reed mentioned, we've been in a few here and there around the country. I've seen churches go through strife and difficult times. And a lot of times people take dogmatic positions that say, my God wouldn't do that. How many times have you talked to somebody about the sovereign God that we serve and they said something to the effect of, I wouldn't worship a God like that? Why is that? Well, because he doesn't fit my mental picture of who he should be. Stand back and behold the Lord your God. He is much greater than our minds. And when we see God moving, in some cases, from our perspective, we don't understand it. We just don't get it. And to us, it seems like it's not right. It's inconsistent with my thinking as to who God should be. If you have a Bible, could you turn to Isaiah chapter 55? And there's a principle here in Isaiah 55, and specifically calling out in verse 8. Isaiah 55, verse 8. Now, when you read these words, you might say, this is odd. I thought that God and I were completely aligned. This is really odd. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Hmm. 
Interesting. I love it when I'm talking to someone who has everything figured out. And I say to them, oh, that I wish I could understand as well as you. You know, they can quote a passage out of Daniel and tell me exactly what's going to happen. You know, I found out yesterday that the world's going to end on October 22nd, May 22nd. Um, This God we serve is bigger than us, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. And if we begin to think that we'll understand God perfectly in this life, We're fooling ourselves because we will not. The prophet assumed something about God that wasn't true. He made some false assumptions, and therefore he made false conclusions about the way that God would think and God would act. And thus we make little idols out of God. You know, when we create a God of our own liking, that is an idol, and God says we should not have idols before him. But the God that we create... that that we, that we like. He's a friendly God. He's infinitely patient, which he is. And I shared a verse, uh, actually 11 verses with the guys yesterday at the men's breakfast uh, that started out with knowing the fear of the Lord. When this God, when we begin to see a picture of God, don't we just want to just bow in reverence and say, Lord, you are much bigger than me. And I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why that x-ray came back that way. I don't know why a 36-year-old man dies before a 96-year-old man. It doesn't make sense to me. But these things happen. So lesson number three that we can glean from this short book is God does not react to situations. He initiates them. It's a simple principle. But does the God you serve react or initiate? God's methods are not the same as ours. God's perspective is not the same as ours. God's initiatives are self-directed. They are not situational. Oh, this just happened. What am I going to do? Well, let me think about that. Um, Okay, let's try this. That's not the God we serve. God we serve is so broad and so infinite that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he is not time-based. He exists in the future as he exists today, as he existed yesterday. Do you understand that? As a child, I always wondered what it would be like to fall off the face of the earth and drift through space. Have you ever had this problem dealing with a number divided by zero? All the technical people know what I'm talking about. Have you taken math? Take a number divided by zero, what do you get? What's the answer? Technical somebody. Infinity. Can we deal mentally with, this, with infinity? You know, I would have literally, I would be laying on my bunk bed as a kid thinking about falling forever. I can't deal with that. Everything I know has boundaries, has, has something that defines its shape. We can't think of God that way. 
Should the prophet have been surprised at all at what was about to take place? If you, again, if you're taking notes, write down, I don't want to turn there, but write down Deuteronomy 28 and look at the first 15 verses and then look at the rest of the chapter because in that passage are all the blessings if they walked in holiness, conforming to God. And then the second half of the chapter, I like the first half much better, but the second half is all about the curses if you don't. So the prophet shouldn't have been surprised at all. So having made his argument, he comes to a point back in our text in Habakkuk chapter 2. He comes to a point where he says, I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And how I may reply when I am reproved. So the... The transformation that takes place in the prophet at this point is that he learns to wait and to watch and see what God will do. As I said earlier, I want it now. I'm a microwave Christian. I admit it. I said to the guys yesterday, I confessed I have traffic sin. And I don't like going slow in the left lane. And I think anybody, I think anybody who wants to go slow should never ever enter into the left lane. But they always do. Confess. I, I, I want it now. I'm a microwave Christian. We're all microwave Christians. We want it now. We see the change of heart in the, in the prophet when he says, I will watch and I will wait. And I will tell you that in all the teaching of the New Testament, I find that watching and waiting is the hardest thing. I cry out unto my God, I expect an answer. And not only do I expect an answer, I expect the answer. The answer that, that I asked for. I asked for a, a rock. Uh, I don't want a fish. Consider this morning, just for a second, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. Uh, how does God answer our prayer? Think about that for a minute. Just how does God, I mean, sometimes when I'm praying and I'm asking and I'm praying and I'm asking and, and I'm inconsistent with this, I'm not holding myself up as the prayer warrior that I should be. But sometimes I'll open up the word shortly thereafter or I may be sitting and hearing preaching or something or I may be listening to a sermon and a, boom, there's my answer. Have you ever had that experience? Is the word of God real to you? Is it, is it living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and able to penetrate between the joints and the marrow and affect us? Or is it an old dead history book? His spirit sometimes answers our prayer by just helping us to know how to pray when we don't know how to pray. In some situations, we don't want to pray. We wouldn't know what to say if we did pray. And sometimes the Spirit comes alongside like the paraclete that he is, and he helps us to pray with groanings that we don't even understand. And yet we know that when we've completed that time, we know that we've met with God. 
and there's been no intelligible conversation going on between us. Have you ever had that experience? That's an answer to prayer. How else does he answer prayer? Sometimes there's that text in Philippians chapter 4, which so many of us skip, so many of us miss, Anxiety is in fact a sin just like any other sin, but it says to us that don't be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, lift up your petitions unto the Lord. And it says in 4.7, the peace of God shall reign or rule in your heart. Have you experienced that? That's an answer to prayer. There was time in, in our life, Judy and I, where the, there's been a lot of physical things in our life and there was a time where we were in the depths of it, and yet God gave us a peace. And I, I invented this term. I maybe stole it. I don't know. But it's called, I call it a grace bubble. And God creates a grace bubble for people. Sometimes when they're in the midst of the fire, that you feel a peace about things, even though there are no answers. A grace bubble. That's an answer to prayer. Now, indeed, sometimes God will arrange providence. He will open doors. He will close doors. He will send you there. I've gotten those phone calls where the day that I was told I had no job, I got a phone call from an old boss that said, why don't you come to Boston? We have a job here, and we need you. And I said, you know, I just came from a meeting with my boss where my job was eliminated, and yet you called me. Boy, wasn't I a lucky guy? Anybody know? Uh, I'm sorry. That's supposed to be humor. But... Sometimes God actually opens doors, closes doors. I've been praying for a husband. I've been praying for a wife. I've been, you know, and then suddenly, boom, something happens. Lesson number four is that we need to watch and wait. That appears to be the Christian. Now, I just quickly want to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones. Have you read Martin Lloyd-Jones by any chance? I mean, if you haven't read Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm not sure... Well, anyways, um, you should read Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, we remember a guy that used to say, if you hadn't read Pilgrim's Progress, you're probably not a believer, but uh, I wouldn't go that far. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and listen, it is not enough for us to simply tell God what the problem is and cast our burdens on him, but we must also then wait on him to answer. You get that? So a great principle in the Christian life is that once we have taken the problem to the Lord and hoisted it upon him, we must not then soon take it back and hold it to our breast again. Have you done that? Lord, I'm going to give you this problem, and I'm going to wait on you for an answer. And you stand up from your prayer closet, and you say, now let me think about this some more. Let me, let me meditate on my problem some more. And let me go over to my brother Bill and start talking to it. Uh, Bill, I'd like to talk to you about my problem. And let me call the pastor. You know, I just said I left it with the Lord, but then I took it back so I could nurture it some more. We like to nurture our, our crises, our problems. And Jones says that if, in fact, we go right back to being anxious about it, we might, not as, we might as well not even have prayed at all if we go on talking to ourselves about it or sharing it with every brother or sister, aren't we seeking an alternative solution? We'd just like to work our options. Maybe God can't handle this one, so my new friend Ed, he might be able to help. This God we serve 
is an infinite God. Would you wring out the juice from this sweet book and understand that the God we serve is great and awesome and mighty. He doesn't favor the wicked. Even in our current geopolitical situation, there are times where we step aside and we say, I don't like what's going on, Lord. Whether it be our own country, whether it be in Africa, when you look at what's taking place in Africa where Christians' homes are being burned and and they're being uh, murdered for the gospel's sake. I don't like this at all. Our God knows what's going on. He's infinitely capable of dealing with the situation. We need to be on our knees and praying and giving it to God. If you, if you want to get the sweetness out of this book, I would urge you to read chapter 3. We're out of time, so I can't take you there right now. But look at chapter 3. Look at the way the prophet ends his dialogue with the Lord. Just take a quick peek at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We thank you for being careful to tell the prophet to write it down. Thank you that he was able to write it down so thousands of years later your people could glean something of who you are. We confess before you, O God, you are great and mighty. And as we enter this week and consider the ultimate sacrifice of God being made sin, so that we that were sinful could become righteous. O Lord, humble us and give us more faith that we might learn to live by faith. In Jesus' name we ask all of these things. Amen. Praise God from Blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above the heavenly host, praise Father, Son.